Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. All right. Welcome, everybody, to Spirituality Adventures. We're so glad you tuned in to this episode. And we are excited to have Dan Cox today. Dan and I share quite a few things in common. Uh, We were both formerly evangelical megachurch pastors. Uh, We planted churches. We grew our church from small churches into what what you would call a megachurch. And then we've both gone through um, sort of uh, our lives falling apart, Uh, what Dan would call disillusioned. And Dan um, went through his quite a bit earlier than mine. Like his kind of started in 2006, seven. Yeah. Mine started in, you know, precursors before, but I went to rehab in 2018. So quite a few years later, but Dan uh, has done an excellent job sharing his story. For those of you who are watching, I'm holding up Dan's book. It's called disillusioned subtitle is a journey from certainty to faith. And Dan actually signed a copy and mailed it to me back when I went was in the when I was feeling like an atheist, Dan, because <laughs> I looked at this. You signed this and mailed it to me uh, in July of of 2020, and uh, I I had uh, my my darkest moments were in 2019, but uh, no. but I read this back, you know, two years ago, and then I reread it for this interview. Oh, wow. and really, I think I got more out of it, more out of it on the second read than the first read, uh, just because I, I don't know why, but I just did. So I really love the way you put this together. So we're going to talk some about your book. Okay. Like I'm going to actually go through, you know, just raise some questions around your book. All and right. Then, and then I also want to talk a little bit about, sort of like some of the crisis going on in the evangelical world right now, not just with members leaving the evangelical world, you know, like the whole deconstruction zone, but, um, but, you know, even pastors like ourselves who are going through this as well. And a lot of them are pastoring right now and they don't, they don't want to admit to anybody or they, they feel like they're going to lose their job, you know? And so, uh, it's not just a problem with people attending church and leaving church. It's, it's a problem with the clergy as well. So I kind of maybe want to talk about that, but first I want to get a little bit of your, your own personal background, kind of where you were born, just kind of your origin story, how you grew up and uh, how you wound up being the pastor of, um, Canyon view vineyard and, Did, did I say that right? Canyon. Yeah, you did. Canyon View Vineyard, Canyon Church. View Vineyard Church in Grand Junction, Colorado. Colorado. So thanks for joining us, Dan. And you uh, bet. appreciate you and 
we were colleagues. You know, we weren't super close friends, but we were certainly colleagues while we were pastoring in the yeah. vineyard movement. And Rick That's Olmstead right. was was our overseer, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. You know, well, so and I think we met at conferences and talked and that yeah. kind of stuff. But, That's right. You know, yeah. We yeah. And you were you were your church was ahead of mine, you know, in terms of growth and all that kind of stuff. So I was always trying to pick your brain, learn from you and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I so, hope I didn't yeah. set you on the wrong path. <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> oh, man. But all right. So anyway. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No. So tell us where you were born, kind of how you grew up, your grow up years, that kind of thing. I was, I was born here in Grand Junction, which is a small town on the Western Slope. And that, you know, when people think of Colorado, they always think Denver. And we're clear on the other side of Denver, 250 miles west of Denver. And I was raised in a fundamental church, you know, uh, Assembly of God is what it was. So it was Pentecostal. My parents were uh, some of the nicest people you'd ever meet. In your, and they had really bought in. And so our life growing up was centered around church, you know, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday night choir practice, you know, so it was just constantly a church. And, uh, you know, I had lots of questions, Fred, growing up and uh, things that didn't make sense to me. But the way the authority structure worked from our pastor to my dad to my uncle, who was the coach of the local high school here and had a great influence on my life, uh, you were basically told what to believe. But that didn't stop the questioning that went on. And so uh, I bought into the system, but I had all these questions. And I, I, I have to be honest with you, I still have questions today. You know, that, that are largely not answered. I think but I have I, more now than I've ever had before, maybe. <laughs> and, and that's what I used to tell people. You should have known me about 20 years ago because I was the guy with all the answers. Now I'm the guy with all the questions. Right. You know? right. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we just have better questions now, right? <laughs> yeah. And hopefully, yeah. <laughs> and a better seeker, too. You know? Right. Yeah. But then uh, my wife and I, well, before that, uh, I had a friend that went to Youth with a Mission, and I'm sure you're familiar with of that. Of course, yeah. Lots of friends. And that he and I had done a lot of sin together. I mean, capital S-I-N, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came back, and he was really changed. And I was going to a local college here because I was on a football scholarship, and he'd sit down and just talk to me. What college? And it's called, well, in those days, it was Mesa Junior College. And okay. today, it's... Colorado Mesa University. Okay. So we're talking over a half a century ago. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's grown quite a bit. Okay. And so anyhow, uh, my my girlfriend at that time and I decided to go to YWAM because I'd gotten hurt in football, couldn't play football. I was on a scholarship. And I thought, wow, I might as well go see the world. And uh, had the opportunity and the resources. And so we went to Switzerland and went to School of Evangelism in YWAM. And honestly, some of those questions that I was talking about started being answered. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, there's a bigger world than Grand Junction, Colorado. There's a bigger church than First Assembly. There's a bigger God, yada, 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 you know, mm -hmm. and uh, really set me on a spiritual pilgrimage 
that kind of scratched me where I itched for a long time. And then from that, uh, through a lot of circumstances, uh, the church we were going to uh, had split and divided I don't know how many times. And because I'd done some public speaking in YWAM, they asked me to just take over the church until they found somebody. And so I took over the church and two years later, they weren't looking for anybody and the church was starting to grow. So I call it a field promotion that we got. But it was a lot of that basis in youth of the mission that really gave me the formulation of what I wanted to do in a church mm-hmm. and started answering some of those questions that I had about God and the church. And so, so what what church was this then that you took over? Uh, it was called Christian Life Center. And, Christian Life uh, Center. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and it, you went into YWAM in what, 71? Yeah. In 1971. And then uh-huh. when did you go back to Grand Junction and start pastoring uh, this church? Well, I went back to Junction in 73, I believe it was, and then uh, started pastoring. Well, I went to this church for a number of years, and then it was 1981 when I, I took over. Okay. All and right. it was not a hostile takeover. It was just a promotion. Right. <laughs> Nobody I got else you. was there. And there's only 30, 35 people, something like that. Yeah. And did... Did you and Cheryl go to YWAM together? Yes, in we did. What we year were married you married? 1970, December 4th. And then okay. we went to YWAM. Well, we were in Switzerland 10, year, 10 days after we got married okay. in Lausanne. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so fascinating. Um, you know, I've got, so it's just as a little aside, I don't want to run down it, but uh, I've got an interview scheduled next Tuesday with Frank Schaefer, Jr., Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> Labrie. Yeah. 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 I loved his dad. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, Frank is um, interesting. You know, he's kind of went through a whole disillusion, deconstruct, all that kind of stuff. And years ago. And uh, but he's such a fascinating guy right now. I've gotten gotten to know him just a little bit and uh, doing it. Well, that's interesting him. that you bring that up because his dad. Francis Schaefer wrote that book. Uh, what is it? Uh, there so is so many or- books, but um, yeah, whatever happened to the human race, and then one before that was I, I'm man. He had I, so I, many, yeah, yeah. But anyhow, he was really the first intellectual Christian that I ever read. Yeah, for a lot yeah. of evangelicals, that's that's the scratch itch that he scratched was a thoughtful. Yeah. Uh, evangelical approach, you know. And a lot of our, our friends from YWAM went across the lake to the Brie where he okay. was talking. And okay. so I, I was familiar with Francis. Yeah. Schaefer. Yeah. Yeah. The God who is there. That's the name of it. Oh, okay. God who is there. God who yeah. is there. Yeah. All right. So. Um, so, yeah, you start. So you basically became the pastor of this church in in 80, say again, 80, 81. All right. And yeah. at that time, how many people were attending? Uh, there was 35 or 40, maybe 50 at the most. And was it associated with the Assembly of God denomination? No, it actually was associated with the Pentecostal Church of God out of Joplin, Missouri. Okay. So it, very fundamentalist. I mean, there's, you know, Assembly of God, then there's really not much difference okay. at all. You know? Okay. Yeah. And so then talk, talk to us a little bit about 
your marriage, kids, and the, the growth of the church? So uh, I have two daughters and a son. Um, and uh, at that stage of the game, when our son was born, John, in uh, 19, uh, now this is really going to challenge me, 1982, he was born. And, uh, and I, I guess I should say it this way. My ex-wife and now my deceased wife, Cheryl, was, uh, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when she was pregnant with John. And uh, interestingly is enough. That her first, was, is that your firstborn, John? No, that's my thirdborn. Thirdborn, uh, okay. Wendy's the oldest, although she wouldn't like to. And then Mary and then John. Okay. <laughs> and uh, uh, when it's interesting that when you're pregnant like that, that the symptoms of multiple sclerosis go away. And the okay. medical community cannot figure out why, but it usually does happen. Well, after she delivered John and the church was just starting, you know, she went down into a wheelchair. And I mean, the viciousness of the multiple sclerosis just took over her body, raging. And so we were going through that process, two daughters. I was working full time for my dad in a car dealership and pastoring a church. And she was sick. So she dealt with that for, oh, a few years. And this is part of my disillusionment. And I think mm-hmm. I read about it is that because all the symptoms went away. We had a prayer meeting and, you know, believe God and all the rest of it that you do and that kind of stuff. And all the symptoms went away. And we thought, hey. So did she get out of the, she go into a wheelchair, and then come out of the wheelchair? Yeah. Wow. Wow. For 14 years, Fred. Wow. I mean, absolutely, you know, uh, was doing really, really well. Yeah. And, and of course, during that time, uh, we had moved out of the church that we were in, a little church, because we were running two services then. And my dad had a dealership, and it had sold, and the building was there. And so we went out and created what we called the Chrysler Cathedral. (laughs) And turned that church into a uh, or that business into a church, huh. and uh, then that grew, and we were at four services at that church, and then we moved to the facility that the church is now in, in two thousand, which we built a large auditorium and yada yada yada. Yeah, and it was through that process, and and here, and, and you can you can probably identify with that because you go through all these growth stages and you feel like you're a pretender because you really are a pretender because you've never been there before, you know, and you're going, well, I know what I'm doing. You really don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and uh, all this success around in my life, and we were running three services at Canyon View of a venue that had 1,500 chairs in it. Mm-hmm. Now, not all of them were full, you know, but... Right. In this extreme blessing, and yet I was falling apart on the inside. Yeah, yeah. My marriage was falling apart. Right. So you, your, your, your son was born what year? Nineteen eighty one. Oh no, no, nineteen eighty two. Okay, eighty two. Yeah. And you were you were in this uh, Pentecostal group, but at some point you ran across John Wimber, and ended up joining the Wim, the 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 Vineyard movement in the late eighties. Was that? What year did you join? Eighty-seven. I when I encountered Wimber. Okay. So now here's what what happened to me. That's a, I'm glad you brought that 
because that was a really uh, turning point in my life. Because what I felt in the church is that I can't do church like this. As a matter of fact, I would not let people call me pastor because my idea of a pastor was a guy with a bouffant hairdo and a three-piece suit. And I knew I wasn't one of those, you know? (laughs) So I don't exactly remember how, but Wimber was in Denver at Tom Stipe's church. Right. And something came across my desk and I'm going, I'm going to that. Well, and Tom had started a church there on Sheridan Boulevard in Denver. That was an old liquor warehouse. Mm-hmm. And I walked in there and the, you know, folding chairs and a band. And, you know, when Tom came out and started to speak, he wasn't in a suit and he just talked like a normal guy. And then Wimber gets up and takes over and it's like, I'm sold. Yeah. I think, if I can do church like this, right. I can do church. Yeah, I know. Because you know? it's the same me, way when I when I saw my first vineyard. Yeah. The first vineyard I went to was in Las Vegas, Nevada. And really? Yeah. I was um, <clears throat> I was a Southern Baptist. I grew up Southern Baptist. I got saved in a Southern Baptist youth camp uh, from recreational drugs when I was a teenager. Felt called to be a pastor. Went to Baylor, went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, went on. I tried to plant a church out of seminary and they, they said I was too charismatic went on staff at a kind of charismatic light Southern Baptist church in Virginia. And we went to the national Southern Baptist convention one year in 1989, they had it in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I had bumped across Wimber because I was a part of these Southern Baptist charismatic churches when I was in college and seminary. So I remember had actually come to our church in 84 and I loved him. And so then at, in 89, I talked my pastors into going to the vineyard in Las Vegas, Nevada. Barry Diamond, a guy named Barry Diamond was the pastor. I remember him. Huh? And uh, he had, he there, there were card dealers and ex-strippers and every kind of Vegas person you could think of in that church. And I felt called to plant a vineyard from that experience. I saw that in action, like what you're describing right now with Tom Stipe and Wimber. I saw that in Vegas and I was like, holy crap, this is what I want to, I want to do a church like this. (laughs) Let me backtrack here. So that year that I was with YWAM, we went to Afghanistan and in Afghanistan, the reason we were there were not for the Afghanis, but we were there because of the counterculture, the hippies. And the hippies mm-hmm. could live in Kabul, Afghanistan for about 25 cents a day. Wow. With all the drugs that they wanted. Now they were infested with all sorts of diseases and their yeah. life was a mess. But something was born in me for my generation mm-hmm. in there because I, I couldn't figure it out, Fred. Here's kids from Western civilization that had everything to offer. And when you're in Afghanistan, there's not much there, you know, and they had given it up. And it's like, well, what's wrong with this picture? And so I knew when I walked into Wimber and Tom Stipe that there was an environment that I could invite these people, these counterculture into that kind of environment. Exactly. And it it so spoke to me that I I really gained a vision. It's like, I know what I'm supposed to do now. Yeah. It's like the whole purpose of my life came together is I'm supposed to gather unchurched. And I didn't even know that term. Yeah. You know, 
until I read somebody's book and it's like unchurched. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm after. Yeah. It's the unchurched people. But it was my generation because yeah. here's the thing about boomers. I know what they feel. I know mm-hmm. what they think is because I don't have to pretend that's who I am. Right. You know, and so I could relate yeah. to that. Well, I was the same way, but just a little little after you. I went to that Barry Diamond Church, 89, and then I moved back to Kansas City in 1990 and started knocking on doors, trying to reach unchurched people, started Vineyard of Kansas City, Missouri in 1990. I had three wow. people knocked on doors. Three. Yeah, at yeah. the end of two years, I had 50 people and started a Sunday morning service in a in a middle school with 50 people. Yeah. And then we, you know, we grew every year for almost 29 years until I went to rehab and uh, yeah, led lots yeah. of people to Christ and, you know, several well, thousand people in the end, you know, I, I think the last Easter I did, we had over 5,000 in attendance. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, let's move to the disillusioned. <laughs> okay. So yeah. you're a pastor in this church, it's growing. It's, people are coming to Christ. People's lives are getting changed. Um, you move into a new auditorium that seats 1500 people and 2000, but evidently your life is falling apart a little bit. And this is what your book disillusioned what my about. to unpack all of that. Yeah. Talk, give us the, give us the setting for the disillusionment that happened in 06, 07. So, uh, and this was a time that was working up in me because, uh, it, to be really honest with you, my disillusionment came with the idea of, of prayer. You know, the, and we're told, uh, say to this mountain, be removed in the sea and don't doubt in your heart and it'll be done, you know, and all that. Uh, and I, I'm not dispersed, but where I was at that point was this is a big mountain in front of me. And here I am walking through a facility. That it's a beautiful facility. Yeah, I've been there. And I'm at the zenith <laughs> of what other men and women want in their life. And I'm falling apart. And I'm thinking, this is not what I had in capture. This is not. And it wasn't just the idea that I'm at this incredible time of blessing in my life. It was what was happening on the inside of me with the God that I thought I knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it was like, something is not right here. You know, I wasn't painted with the full picture of, quote, the gospel. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't hear the parts about Jeremiah when he said, not only do I curse the day that I was born, I curse the guy that announced my birth, mm-hmm. you know, and that those kind of questions started coming up in me. And it's like, where are you in my hour of need? Because mm-hmm. I felt and, and honestly, there was a time when I went out into the mountain here, you know, and I said some things to God that I never believed would ever come. It was almost like it was involuntary, like a volcano of stuff that was coming out of my mouth. Yeah. And I thought, where are you? Yeah. You know, and I felt forsaken. Yeah. Is what I felt. And that was kind of the catalyst of because I, I couldn't put together this incredible blessing that was going on. Ex- externally, but internally, I was dying. Right. And yeah. I was overwhelmed by because I couldn't remove this, this thing in my life called multiple sclerosis and God that was supposed to, and he didn't. 
Yeah. So that, that was kind of the beginning of it. I hope that yeah. kind of capsulizes. Yeah. That. So I think for our audience that, you know, so Cheryl, your, your wife, you know, what you guys prayed for, she was in a wheelchair. She gets out and she looks like she's healed for 14 years. And then all of a sudden it comes back with a vengeance. Yeah. She's back in a wheelchair and, and her illness affected her mentally, emotionally, relationally, every way. And every yeah, way. You're, you're succeeding. Your church is growing. Everybody, er, er, any pastor out there wants to learn from Dan Cox, you know, but, but like all of a I'm sudden apart. your world, like God's not answering prayer. It feels like God's bailed on you, abandoned you, forsaken you. I had all of those feelings. Like I literally felt like an atheist 2019. You know, I went to yeah. rehab at the end of 18. I was in rehab for 120 days. While I was in rehab, my wife filed for divorce and I, uh, my, my board asked for my resignation. I came home to an empty house, had to hire a divorce lawyer. And uh, a 37 year marriage ended and I, I lost my career. I lost my marriage. I lost my, uh, every, you know, my money, my finances, I lost, 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 lost. And then I felt like I lost my faith too. Yeah. And uh, I felt utterly abandoned, kicked to the curb, ghosted, you know, all, all the friends that I thought I had and all the people that I thought supported me and everything just were gone. And, uh, except with the exception of a few, you know, a few friends and my, my, my side of the family really stuck with me, my mom, yeah. dad, sisters, but somebody sent me a Richard Rohr book, uh, in oh, the yeah. fall of 2019 falling upward. And that kind of, uh, at least got my faith off the ventilator. I, I still have, I still feel at times, uh, forsaken, abandoned. Like I still have all, more questions and answers. I'm still, uh, definitely evolving. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, too. but yeah. let me, so I want to go through like, um, the foundations of your faith chapter two, you know, your questions, what do you do when things don't work out the way you thought they would when you believe God would rescue or deliver us from circumstances. And he doesn't, it's like, it felt like God had healed Cheryl. And then all of a sudden she's back in the wheelchair. I mean, that's such a vivid thing. And then, yeah. and then it influenced, and then it really, your marriage has fallen apart behind the scenes and the God that you believed in that you had thought healed her isn't talking to you anymore. Right. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it. You say, is it okay for me to have a crisis of faith where I can discover what I truly believe for myself, not what another person or an institution has taught me? You had inculcated all of these beliefs from your early days to YWAM to, to Vineyard. You're teaching them. You're helping other people find faith. But all of a sudden you're questioning everything and you're pastoring a, a growing megachurch. Yeah. Does the tension we struggle with about God and suffering and heaven and humanity become a companion for life? Or can we find a place of faith that is practical, a place of faith that brings comfort and peace? Becoming a skeptic was something I never imagined. Yeah. Wow. And that, and that you know, an illusion is something that is not real. 
being disillusioned means at least you're becoming closer to reality. At least that's that's my understanding yeah. of it. And I almost felt like God was an Indian giver. Right. He gave healing and then he took it away. Right. And so I'm left in this. I'm preaching all this stuff and I'm believing all this stuff, but it's not actually working in my life. Right. When it comes to the real issues of life, you know, and, uh, you know, God loved the people that were around me in those days because they sent us to retreat centers, week long counseling, all this kind of stuff. And at some point you go, this just isn't working. It's not you're flogging a dead horse. Yeah. You, know. you you and your wife are actually going to counseling. You know, my my wife wouldn't go to counseling with me. I'd ask her to go to counseling probably every year for 30 something years and she just wouldn't do it. Yeah. So I never had uh, somebody to work on that with. Um, but even even if you have somebody that's willing to work on it and go to counseling, it doesn't always work out. <laughs> it doesn't always work out. Yeah. And you're praying a thousand prayers, a million prayers, right? Yeah. For it to work. You're, you're totally committed to your marriage. You're totally committed to your wife. You're totally committed to God. Even when your marriage is going bad, you're more committed to God than you are even probably to your wife. And you're going to be faithful because you love God. Right. Yeah. But even that starts falling apart. That's right. And what I found out is silence is, is horrifying. I, know. I still feel that a lot, Dan. Oh, I do too. You know, it's like, well, I, I would really like to hear something from you and I, I get nothing, you know, and there's a difference between silence and stillness. Mm-hmm. And the silence I felt was absolute abandonment, you know, right. but stillness, there's a presence there that you, and I didn't feel that presence. Right. I'm, the, that, same. I'm yeah. the same way, dude. I, you yeah. you could have I could write your words. Serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, your so the foundation. So prayer falls apart with you. Um, yeah. Because no, you know the little the little answers that we gave people as pastors. Well, God works everything out for good. Yeah. Or you know you're in this situation and you're, you're, you're asking for God to do things. He doesn't do them. And then you're like, okay, well, you know, God always answers prayer. He says, yes, no, or wait, but you know, you have all these little simple things that just in a deep way don't seem to make sense anymore. Right. They don't satisfy yeah. when you're in the middle of it, that yeah. those little answers just do not satisfy at all. And I, you know, to me in those, in, in those moments um, of darkness, and it really was darkness for me. Uh, I, I, I don't even know how to express the uh, confusion. You know, it's like I couldn't get my head wrapped around why I'm in this position to have feel like the rug has been pulled out from underneath me, but that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. And yet I was supposed to go to church and be happy. Right. <laughs> right. And yeah. yet things, things were not working that way. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I'm the same way, you know, and then what happened with me is I couldn't sleep for 30 years. You know, I was only sleeping three hours, four hours a night. 
And my, yeah, marriage, you told me. What, my marriage wasn't healthy. And then I went through this massive in 2016, I went through this massive crisis and just got burned out in church. So even church wasn't, you know, I could, I could set my marriage aside and everything else aside and, and just look at the blessing of the church and throw myself into the church. But then even that kind of fell, I got burned out in church even in 2016. And then I started trying to deal with my insomnia and then I was on Xanax and then I was throwing out oh, yeah. on top of that. I was on Xanax and alcohol every night for two years. And then I became, you know, unfaithful. And my, my, my wife wasn't living with, she'd moved in with her mom to take care of her mom. Right. And so all of that, and it just all fell apart for me. Like I, when I went to rehab in 2018, I felt lost. Like I'd never oh, yeah. known what it felt like. Like I'd preached about reaching lost people my whole life. But when I went to rehab, like I, like it didn't feel like I, I felt utterly lost. Like God's not there. I don't know who I am. I'm lost. <laughs> like, right. And right. I'm, I'm almost 60 years old. Yeah. Pastoring a growing mega church. And you don't know who you are. I don't even know who God is. I don't even know if God's exists anymore. Right. Holy crap. Oh yeah, it's, that's that's a that's really a crisis of faith, right? There. Oh God! <laughs> and you have the chapter five, God in His own image or mine, and you you are going through that. Well, who the heck is God? If if the yeah. God I've thought I believed in my whole life isn't actually the God who exists, then who the heck is God? Yeah. And what's, and what's you your concept what? of God now, Dan? Now. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because it's, it really is interesting. I, I read a, a book and it was a Jewish guy and he said, one of the reasons why we never give a name to God, it's not because he's holy or we can't say it. It's because the concept of who we have of God at that moment does not suffice because it's ever expanding. Mm -hmm. And that's what I feel about God. I believe God is merciful. I believe God is love. I believe God is kind. I believe God is all those things. But it's so much bigger than that. And mm -hmm. the God that I had before my disillusionment is so much smaller than the God that exists now in my heart, mm -hmm. you know. And I don't have a whole lot of answers, except that I have experienced this acceptance and love in my darkest hours. Mm hmm. You know, and it wasn't overnight, mm -hmm. but there were specific times and specific activities that I felt God's love. And, you know, it, here's an interesting concept. You know, that scripture in Ephesians that talks about we know the don't know the depth, the height, the mm -hmm. length, the width of God's love. Mm -hmm. But it seems like the church can qualify that. Yeah. You know, and yet God's love reaches deeper. And that's the experience that started to turn me around is that. I really am loved. Yeah. And it was over specific areas in my life that I knew I had really messed up, but his love was deeper than that. Yeah. And it seems to be that love heals that wound. Mm -hmm. You know, even though I can't put together why he didn't answer the prayer, I don't know why Cheryl's dead. I don't mm -hmm. know why MS took over and all the rest of it. But I, mm -hmm. and here's an interesting experience that I had is that. Three days before Cheryl died, I went to see her in the hospital. And I, I didn't know what to say. 
you know, and we both knew it was the end for her. And she and you guys were already divorced at this point. We were already divorced. Yeah. At 37 year marriage. At 37 year. Yeah. My my marriage ended at 37 years, too, by the way. Well, there's another commonality. Uh But let me just finish this story. What came out of my mouth was, Cheryl, we weren't able to work it out here, but over there we will. Hmm. And to me, that has tremendous rapport that everything that we're going through here is settled over there. And that may be an escapist mentality, but there's something in that that speaks to me that all the answers that we want, you know, I was a hospice chaplain for six years and I, I believe in the other side, you know, more than I ever have. And it's because of personal experience, people watching them transfer from this side to the other side and seeing the things, at least what they reported to me, what they see, mm-hmm. you know, gives me incredible hope mm. about the things that we go through in this life that we are learning. Mm. And if we had all understanding about what we're going through, we wouldn't be, because here's the point, Fred, I learned more in the darkness than I ever did in the light. Mm. I've learned more about God than I ever did teaching about God in my own experiences. Yeah. Which really brings me to this, this conclusion, you know, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they started saying, it. he said, who do you say that I am? Mm. And that's been my quest is who is God to me? Yeah. Not through somebody else. And that seems to be a light that just continually grows brighter for me that there is hope that this, you know, life is, and it's not just a cliche that there is something so much bigger mm. <laughs> than we could ever imagine. And that we're going through this because we're, in, we're here to learn and to love and learn to love. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your concept of God is a, is a God who is, I, I like to say self-giving love um, that is so vast that we, we can't comprehend it. We can't, we can't hardly scratch it, but it is love at the very heart and source of, of everything. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, have you read the great divorce by uh, C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis. Yeah. You know, and he gives that illustration of uh, people that were in hell can get on a bus and go to heaven. Yeah. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And then they get up there and they see all the people that God's forgiven. They go, no, I can't live here and get on the bus and go back. <laughs> and it, again, it's this idea that God is so loving and gracious and kind. Mm-hmm. And the word judgment has bothered me for years. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, boy, I know what I'm going to get when I get there, you know. And I have to I have to say this, Fred, that I've been I've been a student of near death experiences. And I, it, it's again, this is all beyond empirical data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't, of course, that's what we deal with in church is spiritual life that has nothing to do with empirical data, which drives us nuts because we want measurements, you know, but one thing that they do, and this is solidified through thousands of different interviews, they go through a life review mm. and you get to see everything you did, but you know, what's absent judgment. Yeah. So what did you learn? Yeah. And how did you feel about that person? And how did you make that person feel? 
but it's with absolute love and acceptance mm-hmm. and forgiveness. And that's what's there. And that's, if anything that's healing me of my disillusionment is thinking about, I'm learning here and it's important how I treat other people. It's important, yeah. not only how I treat other people, it's important how I treat and love myself. Yeah. You know, and that seems to be what the foundations of our universe is built on is this concept of love. Do you love one another? Mm. Love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy, right? That's uh, it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, um, when I went to, to rehab without anybody interviewing me from my board or friends, you know, like, um, it's, which is a crazy thing. This was, you know, one person wanted my job and kind of used it to, uh, but so without anybody even interviewing me, uh, I ended up on the front page of the Kansas city star Sunday edition. My picture, oh, wow. my pictures above Trump's and mega church pastor goes to rehab. And if you read the two page article, I was an addict an alcoholic and an adulterer. So I call that the triple a. Wow. And, uh, you know, talk about an A on your, the scarlet A in the scarlet letter, you know, and I was buried in shame. I hated myself. I wanted to die. Yeah. Uh, I felt like an atheist. And then, and I got that Richard Rohr book and I started going to AA, um, over three years ago. And I was decided I'd be. I, yeah, I hadn't been a drinker my whole life, really. It was just that two and a half years of Xanax and alcohol that took, that took me down. Yeah. But I just thought, you know, I, I developed all those addictive tendencies. So I started going to AA and was really honest about my faith and everything there. And, you know, when I was when I had no you know, I wasn't even sure God existed, I'd be sitting in these AA circles. And people would just be got honest about everything, like totally vulnerable, honest about their brokenness and something kind of magical would happen in those circles of honesty, of human brokenness and honesty. And, and you could, you could see there were things that something happened, like the spirit moved in some way or another. Yeah. 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 For you and I coming from, you know, vineyard background, we, we had all kinds of concepts of the spirit moving and how he moved. Right. Right. But uh, like this, this, even in my place of greatest doubt, I would see in these circles of vulnerability and honesty, human frailty, like the spirit would move, you know, it's like, okay, well, something's at work here. Yeah. You know, there's one story in the big book about Fred and the first night meeting I went to an AA, I sitting in a circle and the, the guy didn't know me. He was leading the thing and he read this Fred story. And I was wondering if I belonged or not. Like, do I really, do I really need to be going to an AA meeting? And then little things, little things happened in these circles of vulnerability and honesty that for me, um, was like, okay, something's at work here. And it, and I do think it's absolute love and and uh, yeah, so you, you know, you have a couple of chapters on the Bible and quite a bit of thoughts about the church. And, you know, I was thinking as I was in the in this AA world and that kind of became my my Your church, 
Yeah. I, you know, yeah. one of the things I've realized is different, like, cause you and I both tried to build a church for the unchurched and I, I thought right. that you were like me and that you wanted to welcome anybody. You didn't care where they'd been or what they'd done. You, exactly. You wanted them to have an encounter with God's grace. Right. That's right. But what's interesting is people come to church for all different kinds of reasons. Right. You know, they might not show up at church because they're utterly broken and disillusioned and don't have a clue about anything. They might they might show up because they want their kids to turn out right. They might show up because they want, you know, business networks for their business. They might show up because you're a great speaker and you entertain them. They might show up because, of, you know, da, 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 da. but in the midst of all that, I'm sure you had people's lives that were that did show up broken and were really mm-hmm. transformed. Right. But what I've noticed in AA is nobody shows up at AA thinking their lives are together. Nobody shows up dressed up with a smile on their face who's falling apart. You show up at AA when you're when your ass is on fire is what we say. And you're about ready to go to prison or you're about ready to be dead or you're about ready to lose everything or you've lost everything. And right. you're, it's the last place on earth you want to show up. But that's where everybody starts in a 12-step group. And so I think there's something beautiful about that grounding of humility and vulnerability and honesty and brokenness that that's beautiful and something moves some something happens in that mixture right oh yeah and yeah. when i was reading your comments about church and the illusion of the church and what we think is living right and wrong and god blesses us and all it, it made me think of some of that you said it's a radical vision of the church to allow people to think and act and be who they want to be, to suspend judgment and give them time and space to explore and find God for themselves. I'm sure if that, I'm sure that if that happened, the church establishment would begin, would begin their cries of relatives. Or, or I'm sure the church establishment would begin their cries of relativism and claims that letting people push the boundaries will lead to sin and all manner of behavior and, and belief. But this is not, a new, you know, you're saying if we just let it, if we just love people and let them explore. And that's what I, th- I think we need a place for people to a safe place for people to fall apart and question yeah. and doubt everything. Yeah, exactly. A place to find faith, lose faith and then rebuild faith, you know, like and love them through all of it. Not just when they believe the right things or do the right exactly. things. Or, you know, when they break the rules of the club. Yeah. You know, which all of us do. It's an interesting statement that, geez, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? It's my brain always. Uh, the Dalai Lama said this. He says, know the rules really well so you can break them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like nobody intentionally breaks rules. But the point of it is that sometimes life becomes really gray. It's not black and white. And people go through just like we did, you know, trauma-filled experiences. And we don't know, even though we're, quote, the teachers, we don't know. And we break the rules. But, you know, we're going through something. And then you've got this establishment over here that says that that's not the rules of the church. That's not the rules of the club. So mm-hmm. therefore, you are out. And that goes back to my illustrations. There's nothing beyond the bonds of God's grace and love. Mm-hmm. I agree. He can redeem it all. And he does. And evidently, all is redeemed. Mm-hmm. So that means even the bad parts of my life. And that's probably one of the 
healing aspects of who God is, mm. is that he came to redeem that too. Yeah. But what did I learn from it, Fred? What did you learn from it? Yeah, you know, it's in, in the AA 12-step world, you have the higher power. And so you don't really define God and you let people come up with their own concept of God. In fact, when Bill W. was wrestling with the spiritual principle, the founder, you know, one of the founders of AA, he was like, he couldn't believe in this czar in the sky, in the sky, this God who controlled everything because too much suffering, too many things out of control, right. too much craziness. And so one of his buddies was said, well, why don't you just come up with your own concept of God? That's This is in the big book. Oh, like, wow. Bill W. was like, oh, okay, I can do that, you know, like. <laughs> I can make yeah. up my own concept of God. Well, you know, you and I grew up, you know, well, that's not how it works. You don't make up your own concept of God. But I've watched now hundreds of people over the last three years kind of work out their own concept of God without the Bible, without us telling them what to think or do. And guess what? Nobody, I haven't run across one person yet who comes up with a more pathological, angry God. Like Interesting. What what I've seen is that almost in every circumstance they come up with a more loving God. Yeah. Yeah. They come up with God with less judgment, less all the things we just kind of talked about. And I've yet to find somebody who comes up with a more cruel, pathological God. If you just let them come up their own, it always comes out to be a more loving God. Imagine that. Isn't that something? <laughs> and they and they're on their own, and they're yeah. learning this on their own. Yeah. And it, yeah, and it seems like that people through nature learn about who God is without the help of the establishment. <laughs> and think about children. Like, don't you think that most children, have, if they have an experience of God, that it's a loving God? Oh, yeah. Don't you think they have to be taught that they're sinners and that they're separate from God? Yeah. I don't, I don't think children naturally grow up if they're not taught that they're sinners separate from God. I don't think kids naturally grow up thinking they're separate from God. No, I had an experience. Now, of course, Pentecostal church and, and we had a Tuesday night prayer meeting, you know, and as you know, in the vineyard, the a presence and there really is a presence. There's right. something that happens. Yeah. And I remember being in this place and I'm being encountered by something and it was the most wonderful feeling I think I've ever had in my life. So much so that the next day, and I, I mean, rest, recess was my favorite part of the whole day. I took my Bible to school with me and would go out at recess and read my Bible. Now, what came out of that experience is that I never, and I was probably eight, nine years old. I never asked for forgiveness. I never repented of anything. Just exactly what you're saying. I had encountered something that was perfectly accepting of who I was, and it transformed my life as an eight and nine year old kid. I mean, how much sin can you do? Right. You know, it's <laughs> like there was no barrier there, you know, and that's always been interesting to me. Well, I don't know why I didn't ask for forgiveness, you know, or why I didn't repent, but I was accepted. And that experience to this day, I still can't get away from. I was encountered by God and it changed the course of my life. Mm. So interesting. Yeah, it is. It's, it's mind boggling. And, and, you know, I'm sure you thought about, well, what is the church supposed to look like? Right. You know, and it just absolutely blows me away to even begin that. But what I do believe is this, 
exactly what you're talking about. When people begin to seek God for who they know God to be, they become a better person. Yeah. It transforms them because they're encountering yeah. God at their own speed, at their own way. And God is so big. He knows where to take mm-hmm. them. You know, he knows how to guide them. He knows yeah. how to teach them. And they and they're they're on a journey. <laughs> yeah. Not by themselves. Yeah. It's interesting. I. I do about seven groups right now, small groups. And yeah. um, I do my weekly blog and weekly podcast. And I still pastor a few, lots of people because people have access to me now through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all that. Right. So informally, I pastor, you know, I don't have a brick and mortar right. church or anything, but I've got about seven groups. Three of them are just Jesus. We go through a, a gospel, talk about mm. Jesus. But then two of them are with people who are, ex-evangelical, ex-Christians, ex-Catholic, ex-this or, or Buddhist, or or they're not sure what they are, but we support each other on a spiritual journey without trying to define dogma. And we do med- meditation together or what some people would call centering prayer, contemplative prayer, you know. Right. And these are beautiful groups because it, it's a safe place for people to question and doubt and fall apart. And and we don't, we're, we're not, uh, we're, we're allowing people the freedom to question doubt, have, have unbelief, and yet still supporting each other on that spiritual journey that includes questions, doubts, and interesting or disbelief or all that. And it's beautiful. And, and then we still, we still have these practices about, well, what kind of person do we really want to be if there is a God? <laughs> yeah, right. If there is one, you know, and, and what is that God like? And then what kind of person do we want to be with, with this life that we're given? I noticed in your prayer, you know, like I'm, I'm a lot less about intercessory prayer and way more about just gratitude and accepting reality as it is, you know, Fred, that's what I do every morning. Now, yeah. practically every morning I wake up and this is how my prayer life has changed is thanks. Thanks for today. And thanks that yesterday was good. And I'm assuming that today will be good, but whatever you got for me is okay. And I have found out that when I'm open like that, I receive more blessings than ever this, you know, I've got to pray. I've got to have, you know, Mm -hmm. and just being open to what's going on in my life and Mm -hmm. not trying to force something. I heard a commentator. I'm a great football fan. I love football. And he was talking about a quarterback that kept trying to force it. He said he needs to let the game come to him. And sometimes I want to tell, you know, people that are in the church, just take a deep breath you know, and let the game come to you, you know? Mm. Well, and in reality, it's that's about all we can do, right? I mean, you know, I I still struggle with that because I, I kind of was a, I, you know, I was a goal setter. You know, I always had a three to five year plan and always worked toward goals and mostly saw, you know, if I just stuck at it long enough, I, I saw most of my goals. So I, I was always thought I was coming up with goals that God gave me. And like, now nah, I don't even know how to do a goal anymore. Like, I, yeah. like, it's just like a day at a time. And I, I, you know, I have some plans, I'm working some things, you know, but it, it's not with this sense of like, it's like, I'm wondering like, what is God's will? And it's just like receiving the day and, 
There's so well, many. It's kind of like what you started the conversation with about bucket lists. Uh-huh. You, know? Uh-huh. you know, it's like, I don't have those kind of things set in my life either. But I do find out that when I accept, you know, and, and make plans for the future, that it seems to be a lot less stressful mm-hmm. by just accepting it the way it is. Radical and, acceptance. Yeah. And it's like, you know, uh, because really at the end of life, it, it, here's here's something that I, I really found out to be very, very true is I love paradoxes. And the bigger <laughs> the paradox, I think the more truth. And this is what I, I learned in in hospice. Death makes you appreciate life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you know how you're going to die, now I'm not saying with cancer or heart attack or anything else, but when you know that everything's going to be okay at the end, it gives you a lot of freedom to live today. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the satisfaction that I live with in this gratitude towards God, because I know the end's going to be good. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how I believe it. So whatever I have to go through today is going to be okay because eventually everything's going to be good. Yeah. I don't know if that's Pollyanna or what, but that's exactly how I live. No, I mean, it's, you know, you have this radical acceptance of what is um, without judgment, with receiving the moment, with openness, curiosity, receiving my own emotions, my own thoughts everything with compassion and curiosity and openness and welcome rather than judgment. Manipulation. Well, Fred, I, re- I believe the hardest person on the planet to love is ourselves. I do too. <laughs> you know, I, I can too. love other people a lot. I mean, I'm always I'm, calling myself stupid and what'd you do that for? And that kind of stuff instead uh, of, love. no, you know, I need to learn to love me too, because if I don't love me, other people aren't going to love me. Yeah. Self-compassion is the hardest thing and that, you know, getting rid of, getting out of my shame. That's been a process um, of of all that I went through. So, you know, it's interesting, Dan, because, you know, I, you know, we love the people of the church that we pastored, right? Oh, yeah. You know, and you, I'm sure you like me, even though we've gone through these doubts and questions, like you, I'm sure you've just had hundreds of people, even post disillusionment come up and tell you how much you meant to them, right? Because yeah. yeah. you live in the community that you pastored. I do too. I, yeah. I'm a few minutes away from my mega church that I built and pastored, right? And I bump Me as well. yeah. regularly. And there's this, you know, when I first started bumping into people after I got out of rehab and I didn't have a job anymore, it was, it was almost like humiliating to me and people want to know how I was doing. And most people were gracious, forgiving, and they didn't understand why the church officially wasn't that way. You know what I mean? And yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's been challenging. And then since then I'm, you know, I look like I've bumped into pastors who are pastoring still, but we're, but in a place of disillusionment, but they don't know how, they don't know where to talk. They don't know where to go. They're afraid of losing their job. You have people bailing out of the church, you know, Diana Butler Bass is you, you referenced her a couple of times in your, yeah. your book and you know, the, the numbers of people that are leaving the church right now, uh, it's, it's just alarming, right? If you're a church person, you know, Oh and, yeah. And, um, Scary. and, and what I find out, and I I'm curious what, what you think about is that I, every young person I talk to that has left the church 
uh, whether they're Catholic or evangelical or whatever, they still have a hunger for community. They still have a respect for Jesus most of the time, but they want nothing to do with the judgment or the, you know, the, the exclusive right. nature or the dogma or the this or the that. But there's still this hunger for some kind of community that support, supports some kind of spiritual journey. And nobody knows quite what to come up with Yeah, because we're, we're afraid of institutions, right? Oh yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, and here's, here's a concept that I, I truly believe in is that, you know, we both have passed the big thing and there's really some good stuff that comes out of that. Yeah, You know, yeah. there's, we can't deny that in right. my I mean, you just re- related about people that come up to you and say, man, you taught me this or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is a very comforting thought. But it does leave a real absence for this kind of dialogue. Churches are set up for a monologue. Right. And there's a place for that. But I think what our culture is missing today is what we're doing right now. And when you think about Jesus in the 12, he dialogued. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things that... Obviously, we're not written about what they talked about, but there seems to become more of a personal foundation that evolves from a personal exchange with one another. And I think with all that we've got in technology, you know, with Facebook and all the rest of it, that people are trying to find their solutions through, you know, not being in touch literally with other people. And there's, it's like what that scripture says that, uh, one uh, iron sharpens iron like one man's con- countenance sharpens another man's can- And there's something in us that when we relate to somebody else on that level, brings a satisfaction of community that we don't have in the big thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what a lot of people are crying out for is exactly what your seven meetings are about every I found out that when I get into a conversation with two or three people, that is my church. Mm-hmm. Because it satisfies me at a level that I don't get in the big church. Yeah. And especially if people get honest and open. Exactly. You know, like cut through all the bullshit. (laughs) Right. And get down to what's really going on inside you, you know. And and how many people want to be vulnerable? I mean, people don't even want to walk down the aisle to the front seat you know, of a mega church. That's why you're always trying to get people to come down. But, you know, if you can find people that you can really trust and open up, that there's probably more transformation there than any other thing that happens on the planet. And Jesus used it. Mm-hmm. That's what he did. Yeah. There it's, was a line that you had in your, your book um, that Christianity was Jesus's intuition, but Paul's institution. Do you remember that yeah. line that you quoted? I don't remember. You know, okay. that's been yeah, I know. 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And I, I can't remember what I wrote yesterday. So, um, yeah. But no, it was the, inst- the, the, the institutional, like, you know, you, mar- you even brought out in your book, marriage is even a sort of institution, you know? Yeah. But, so we can't we can't avoid institutional things our whole life. Right. But it, it seems to, it, it seems like institutions just so easily get, get off track and get bogged. That's the point, you know? 
Yeah. And, and here's what I would say about that is that, you know, when I've been a part of two movements now that were freshly born, you know, YWAM and the Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And there was that freedom. I mean, it was it really was a win, you know, and, and you just and there was none of the bureaucracy. You know, and it seems like the larger it gets, it's kind of like a small church when you have a, a you know, a church that meets in a house and you only got 10 people, you don't need a whole lot of organization, mm-hmm. but you yeah. get 30 you people there with you 10 don't need kids. a policy manual. You don't need a policy <laughs> manual, you know, but you get 30 adults and 10 kids. You've got to have some kind of organization. Right. A little bit. And it seems to be that at that point we lose that freedom. Yeah. And I don't know what the balance is between organization and organisms. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if we could keep the freshness of the organism without yeah. the organization, I know. I think we'd have a perfect match made in heaven. But I don't know how that happens. Yeah, it, it's just a rare, rare thing. You know, I, honestly, the 12 step movement I've watched, you know, there's over 100,000 AA groups worldwide. I have no idea. And that's not counting like NA, GA, that's just AA, you know, and there's there's a dozen or more types of 12 step groups now, you know, that covers Overeaters Anonymous and this and that and the other, you know, but just AA has over 100,000 groups worldwide and and it's run with as little organization as you could possibly have. Yeah. And, and it's a fascinating thing to to look at from like this organism versus organ organization paradigm. I I'm guessing that there's not another organization on the planet with as little organization that still thrives as, as the 12 step movement, which is so fascinating to me. Right. Um, Yeah. They managed to put together, not just the 12 steps, but they have what they call the 12 traditions. The 12 mm-hmm. traditions are really, we read the 12 steps and 12 traditions at every meeting. And it's and the 12 traditions are really what safeguards the movement from turning into an institution. It's very fascinating. Uh, wow. Um, and, and so and I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, you know, but, but it just is interesting how, how it works. And, and so I do think the church can learn a lot from, that movement. And I've, I've run across a lot of people who Richard Roy would be one of them who would say, you know, the church needs to be more like the, like a recovery movement, you know, kind of a thing. I, you know, it seems to be that that's, that seems to be a real theme because people want their lives to be changed and somehow an institution creates a creature of its own. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus said to, uh, one of one of the uh, Pharisees, he said, you know, you teach other people to be disciples like you are, and they turn out to be twice the son of hell. I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus is saying some, And I've thought about that scripture. And I think that's what institutions do mm. is they turn us into something that we don't like. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I don't even know what that transformation is, except that the organization becomes. Uh, the master. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you start and I don't know if this was your experience or not, Fred, but you start serving the organization. You know, yeah, I mean, you created yeah, it. Yeah, I created it. You know, all of a sudden, if you want any kind of organization with a 
with a thousand or two thousand or a few thousand people running around. I mean, you, you got to have some policies. You got to have you got to have somebody lock the place up and open it up and you got to take the trash out and you got to clean the floors and you got to do this. You got to do that. And you got to have money policies. and You got to have HR policies and you got to. I mean, there's got to be some kind of organization. Otherwise, it would just be utter chaos. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're in this this dance of adding enough organization. So it's not totally chaos, but still try to keep serving the mission. But the more organization you add to that mission, the more and more institutional and bureaucratic it becomes. It's a, it's I remember a, a gal sitting in my office and uh, was asking for help. And our policies prevented us from helping her. But I could remove myself out of the organization, walk outside the church literally, and give her some money and take care of it on a personal level that I couldn't do. Yeah. To the church. Yeah, right. And, and that represented, well, here's an instrument, the organization for healing. And now what it's doing is causing confusion in a person's life because they felt like we were supposed to help it. And we were. Yeah. But no, we I, couldn't. You, yeah. know, you understand what no, I'm saying? I, I 100% understand. <laughs> and it's like, there's something wrong with this picture. I got, a, I got a letter one time from a guy that I had to fire. And he had lost a brother through AIDS and gone through a divorce and lost his parents. And he said, it's the worst experience of my life. When you fired me, getting fired from the church, getting fired from the church. And I thought, you know, as an instrument of healing, how did we get here? Right. Right. (laughs) I hear you, dude. (laughs) Some guys going, man, you treated me like a devil. All right. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's like there, there's something wrong with the whole idea of institutions and institutions do great works. Right. We, they we do wouldn't. great things. Yeah. But there's something wrong and we haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Well, there I I'm going to try to uh, get this interview in the hands of some people that are have a heart for pastors, because I think this kind of dialogue needs to happen with lots of pastors across America, across denominational lines, um, because it's a, it's, it's real. It's real. It's real. Pastors go through crises just, just the same way that any person attending a church goes through crises. Right. And it's our livelihood. And so it makes it even harder than to get real and honest because, you know, it's, it's our livelihood. And, um, and who do we trust with the things that are going on in our lives? Yeah. And it without it getting out into the church yeah. and coming back on you and all the rest of yeah. it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, Dan, um, we need to, we need to wrap this up, but man, yeah. thanks so much. I've always loved your heart and um, man, your book. I really encourage people to check it out. Dan Cox, disillusioned, a journey from certainty to faith. Um, can they get that on Amazon. Amazon. It was on Amazon. Okay. And uh, I can send you a link. I've got some copies here too, if people are interested Yeah, my address. Yeah. So well, tell us how they can reach out to you directly right now. Uh, well, um, you can reach me at dancox736 at yahoo.com. Okay. Uh, that's my email. I'm on Facebook, just Dan Cox. Okay. And uh, that's about all I have in social media. Okay. Yeah. So I'd encourage you guys to do that. Excellent book. I really love the way you uh, 
just opened your life up and help, you know, it's, it's been good for me. So look forward to staying connected with you and uh, you too, Fred. I hope, we're in, hope one of these days we're in a, in a group of pastors together who, who yeah. can openly talk about all of this stuff. And wouldn't that be wonderful? I yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. God bless you, my friend. You too. Thank you for joining us. Thanks everybody for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures and uh, we'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.